DJ Simulationistas. So, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome, everyone, to DJ Simulationistas. You're here with Dan Raymer and Janice Pallianis. What's up, Dan? Up, Janice. So, Dan, the last podcast we did, I was thinking about it. We talked about what triggered us, our debriefing demons, and self-rescue interventions that we could do in the moment. And so I thought today we could talk about what happens when we trigger our debriefees, our learners, and we realize that we trigger them, and what are some self-rescue interventions Interventions when it's not us, because there's only so much control. Like you have control over yourself, but there's so much, only so much control you can have over other people's emotions. And so, what can you do in those moments? So, uh, speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> I know you have control over yourself. I'm not sure I do. So, anyway, I think that we could talk about things. I'm sure you've had, had experiences, because I certainly have, when I've triggered individuals and in debriefings. And just found myself in that situation, just realized they were just completely disconnected. And I just found it really difficult to reel them back in. Have you ever had an experience like that? Can you give me an example? Uh, You know, I can think of one particular example when I was in a debriefing and I was giving feedback in the debriefing and one of the debriefees, I got the sense that she wasn't very receptive to my initial feedback. Then the entire debriefing group spent about 20 minutes kind of massaging it out and talking about the main points around that feedback point. And at the end of the debriefing, this particular debriefee had had made a comment, which then made me realize she didn't hear the last 20 minutes of the discussion. And of course she wouldn't because she was already checked out at that one point. Now, when I feel like I'm, I may potentially be disconnected with someone, I'll ask at the end, what, what did you hear? And try to bring out the other points if they kind of missed an entire conversation because they were triggered. And the funny thing is like people have the right nonverbals. And I think about, you know, people with Alzheimer's and they have that head nod and you think that they're really connected to you and listening to you and they may in fact be checked out. And so that was, that was one thing I definitely learned from that experience. Have you, uh, have you tried um, uh, asking people what they've heard since then? In similar situations, or yeah. is that a yeah, and the- I theoretical method? No, and it's it's you know it's the whole Laura Rock's emotion before cognition thing is when you trigger someone like if you use a word and they are triggered by it and they're completely disconnected thinking about something else, they will nod their heads and you think they're listening. And then when I use that technique, like, what did you hear? It turns out that they did check out that entire time and I wouldn't have picked it up. And now, you know, I've gotten better at looking at more micro facial expressions to know when somebody's checked out. So yeah, I've used it and, and it's, it's, it's definitely helped. How about you? Most of the 
triggers that I can think of uh, where I've triggered someone and kind of lost them in a debriefing have had to do with technical things, uh, usually the medicine involved. And so I, you know, think of and have nightmares about one particular incident that revolved around mostly the scenario. So it was in an anesthesia faculty course where the participants were experienced anesthesiologists, which I am not. The particular case we were doing was a trauma case. And as I recall, I was involved in the development of the case, but there were other people, uh, knowledgeable people who helped develop the case. And it was a case that we did over some period of time, like years. I think we resuscitated the case for this particular series of courses, and we ran it successfully a number of times until uh, one time we ran it and there was a young intensivist, kind of high-powered young gun anesthesiologist in the course, and he took great exception to the construction of the course. And it had to do with cardiac tamponade. I believe the case had to do with cardiac tamponade. And in the case, the surgeon volunteered to do a pericardiocentesis with a needle. And this particular anesthesiologist said, I've been in this kind of case a number of times, and the trauma surgeon, any trauma surgeon, would open the chest. And so during the case, he kept demanding that the surgeon open the chest. And the surgeon actor, you know, couldn't do that with a mannequin. And so, as they had done before, said, I'll use a needle and try to, you know, retrieve fluid from the pericardium. And uh, he kept yelling at the surgeon to open the chest, and the surgeon wouldn't. And during the debriefing, he started, you know, ranting about how unrealistic the case was because any <laughs> surgeon, uh, you know, you know, who knew anything would just crack the chest. They don't bother with needle decompression of tamponade anymore. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I at first uh, resisted this because no one had complained about that in the number of times I had debriefed that case and before. So this isn't the first time you had run, you run that. Oh, no. We had case. run the case many, many times, and no one had ever complained about it. And so I probably, he probably sensed that I was digging my heels in. And, uh, you know, I tried to uh, basically... Um, uh, kind of go along with him and change the topic to things uh, involving the teamwork and communication. And I probably tried to praise him for his performance. And whatever it was I did was unsuccessful. <laughs> and I know it was unsuccessful because a couple of days later, uh, I got a message from the chairman's secretary that I was to call the chairman. You got called so, to the principal's office. Uh, I sure did. So this <laughs> anesthesiologist went back uh, uh, to his department and stormed into the chairman's office and complained about how the simulation people were teaching uh, the wrong thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, uh, was told by the chairman that, uh, uh, that, 
you know, I should make nice with this person and that, uh, you know, that, you know, when I discussed it with the chairman, uh, he contended this guy was probably correct. By that time, I had realized he probably was correct. He knew what he was talking about. And so I felt very bad that we had, you know, run a case that Mm -hmm. that no longer was credible. And it probably was a few years earlier. Uh, and oh. uh, needle, needle interesting? decompression of uh, cardiac tamponade was something that had been done, you know, for a very long time. I'd seen it done in clinical practice. And so, you know, I, I knew it existed and I, you know, plenty of people agreed with it, but um, few of us had seen that situation clinically in the past you know, several years, and this young, you know, high-powered anesthesiologist had, and he was right. And so I guess, you know, I guess the lesson for me uh, was number, number one, you need to vet the cases and you need to keep them current. And I can think of other examples where case uh, content changed over time. It's such a it's such an interesting thing to me about medicine, you know, having now, you know, lived my career in healthcare from sort of beginning to 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 near the end. I just think it's so cool how things that I learned 40 years ago when I attended medical school and was involved in, you know, in, in clinical situations and clinical practice, how, how those things have, uh, have changed, that things that were absolutes, absolutely true, important, the way, the right way to do things, you know, 40 years ago, have changed to where they're now exactly the opposite. They're the wrong thing to do. We were wrong about that. That's not correct. It's not important. It is interesting how we've had to revisit cases and revise them. Yeah. So as a simulationist, I think you have to be really in tune with what is accurate and what is current and really use the content experts and a variety of content experts to validate your cases and your, you know, your debriefing around those cases. So I think it's interesting that your trigger wasn't you directly in a conversation in the debriefing, triggering someone or using a word that triggers them, it, I think it's interesting that it was it stemmed from the case itself, a artifact in that case. That person was then triggered and and went into the debriefing that way. And so I love your learning. You know, to me, it's a very proactive approach. I guess what I'd love to know is what have you learned in terms of reactive approaches? Like, because there's only so much you can predict. You can make it as real as possible that you think you may even validate it with current practitioners who say, yeah, yeah, very real. And then somebody goes in and they're still experiencing what you saw with, you know, this one person. How do you in that moment rescue the debriefing and the learning? If that were to occur again, I think that's a really good question, and uh, and there's some terminology here that I suppose is important. in In my particular example, uh, the case was the trigger, but I probably threw fuel on the fire from my debriefing. 
And so I probably, by nonverbals and by being a little bit defensive or argumentative, made him angrier because, you know, because he sensed such a, a disconnect between what he knew and what we had depicted and that I was not going to go along with him and I was going to, you know, in his view, uh, try to supplant him as the expert. So I'm always sensitive to that and I really try to do as much violent agreement as I possibly can. By that I mean I try as hard as I can to find things to agree with very strongly when someone with some expertise makes a point. I also try to pay them a lot of deference and call out their expertise in the form of a question. So in this particular case, I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but what I think I would go for now is say something like, I know that you're working in the ICU and that you're doing a lot of big cases, so I guess you're the guy who would know how to deal with this. So tell me about a real case. And, and just really pay him some deference for that expertise. That's the main strategy, is to try to find ways to go along with the person instead of oppose them. I wish yeah. I was there watching. <laughs> so, Dan, those are really awesome points. And I wonder, have you had a time where you've actually implemented them and they've seem to work for you. I have to say that uh, I have been really conscious of it in the past several years. I've been doing uh, interprofessional uh, operating room courses with experienced surgeons in the mix. And uh, each case that we do is in a different surgical specialty. You know, I know very little about, but something about anesthesiology. Often I know nothing about hand surgery or neurosurgery. And so I'm very conscious that the cases that we do may trigger the surgeon in the same way that the particular anesthesiologist that I cited was triggered. And, and I guess I have to say that that has, that that has happened. I, I can recall a case that we did with pediatric surgeons where the, you know, after the first couple of successful renditions of it, the, the other pediatric surgeons who encountered the case all argued that they would cancel the case and that they just wouldn't do it because the complication that we depicted was so obviously going to happen uh, and so obviously going to be difficult that they wouldn't have even started the surgery. And, hmm. and so I just violently agreed with them. And, uh, you know, and I used hypotheticals and, uh, you know, I basically said, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I understand that now, uh, you know, when the case was first made, you know, was, was first uh, created for simulation, it was based on a, on, a, on a real situation that was somewhat different. What if you were caught up in a situation where 
uh, you know, the case hadn't been canceled and it wasn't so obvious, how would you have handled the following set of situations? And so I've tried to, you know, agree with them as much as possible and then turn to the hypothetical uh, or the real world um, to, to try to get them to talk about the very same issues, uh, uh, mostly around the, you know, teamwork and planning that, um, uh, that, that was important in this particular case. And so, so I guess, uh, I don't know whether it's, uh, you know, maturity or experience. I think I have better radar for picking up when people are triggered by the case and I am Mm-hmm. I'm guess, and you know, this is really hard for me to see from the inside, but I hope I depict less opposition to them and more agreement with them in my response in the debriefing than I did, you know, a few years ago when I had the incident where I got called to the chairman's Principal's office. office. <laughs> Dan, can I give you some feedback? Yeah, just don't uh, send me to the principal's oh, office. <laughs> I wanted to see if that triggered you. You know how <laughs> the word feedback is like trigger? Uh, it can be. Um, <laughs> I've come to expect feedback from you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Janice. Uh, nice talking to you. DJ Simulationistas, sup? Is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.